Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Warning, this podcast contains adult themes, graphic descriptions of injuries and loud music. When I came up over a hill, I saw out probably about a mile or so ahead of me what was left of the bus and the truck that had hit, and it was just absolute devastation everywhere. I am talking to Tony Endres. He is a lieutenant with the firefighter department of Hudson County. A border patrol agent had stopped at the department and informed him that there had been an accident 20 miles away and that people were trapped. The truck was actually underneath the bus, what was left of it. The bus was tilted partially sideways with the front end and the side completely blown apart like a huge explosion had ripped it apart. The tour bus of the heavy metal band The Ghost Inside had been involved in a head-on crash with an 18-wheeler truck just a few miles outside of El Paso, Texas. Tony was one of the first people on the scene. The first thing we did is to start to prioritize everyone, those that needed to go out by helicopter as soon as possible, and those that could wait a little bit longer and go by ambulance. See, there was a roadie named Tony. He was pretty bad. He had a severe head injury, but and there was really nothing we could do for him. He was unconscious except for try to get him out as one of the first people. Zach was positioned up where he could see a lot of the other people, but we really couldn't get him out of there because there was somebody down below him. I had to hold Zach up about my shoulder height on his feet as we tried to get him out of there, which was, it was very, very precarious. The whole thing was really devastating. There was a whole place reeked of diesel fuel and battery acid bodies of the two drivers were within just a few feet of each other. All we could do was, once we got them out of the wreckage, was to comfort them, let them know they were going to do everything we can to get them to the hospital safely and get them treated as best as we could. That's about all we could do because we couldn't do a whole lot way out there where we were at. So we spent a lot of time just talking to guys, trying to comfort them and uh, get them out of there as fast as we could. Part two, the crash. I remember waking up to the bus slamming on the brakes, which isn't completely uncommon. You know, like I've done, like I said, other bus tours in Europe where the drivers have had to like slam on the brakes to avoid cars cutting them off or whatever. It's not uncommon but something felt different about this, you know, and it was like a very violent slamming of the brakes and my eyes, you know, shot open. And before I could even brace myself, like bam, impact. This is Chris Davis. He is guitarist for The Ghost Inside. The band was nearing the end of their locals only tour across North America, and they were driving down Highway 180, heading to Phoenix, Arizona for a well-needed day off. I just remember 
like kind of bracing myself on the sides of the bunk until we stopped sliding, which probably only t- took a couple seconds. But in, in my mind, in that moment, it felt like we were sliding for an eternity. It was early in the morning on November the 19th when the accident happened. The front left tyre of the tour bus had blown out. Greg, the driver for the ghost inside, had applied the brakes to try and control the bus, but it veered to the left, entering the eastbound lane, hitting the truck head on. Once we stopped, it was just dead silence. And I like laid there for a minute waiting for Greg, our driver, to yell back and check on us. I was in the furthest most back bunk. So by that point, while while obviously the impact was super severe, uh, the bus had absorbed so much of the impact that I like didn't in that moment realize just how how bad it really was. So I laid there for probably 30 seconds to a minute waiting to hear Greg check on us. And even though it was pitch black in my bunk, like I knew that my my foot was pretty messed up. I couldn't feel it, but I I, I knew that that meant that it was probably in bad shape. Uh, so I decided, you know, I I have to I have to try to get out. I remember waking up and literally like kind of patting myself down, like top to bottom, like am I impaled on anything? This is Jim Riley. He is the basis for the ghost inside. He was also in a bunk at the back of the bus. The emergency window was right by my feet. It was blown out um, so I could see outside. And my natural reaction was just to like go towards the light. So I just like went towards the window and I was able to get out because of the angle the bus was at. And there was like a, you know, there was a piece of iron that I like was able to step down on and step onto the ground. So I was out of the bus in like a t-shirt, my underwear, and that's it. (laughs) At first, like, you're just kind of like, what the hell happened? And then like, I started to hear the other guys and I like turned and I looked and the whole front half of the bus is gone. And in my mind, I started thinking like, what did we hit? Like, how did this happen? How is this possible? The bus had uh, kind of stopped, not completely on its side, but it was tilted and it was tilted towards the side that I was on. Um, so the bunks from the other side of the bus had fallen on top of the bunks on my side of the bus. Like there was a small hole for me to try to squeeze through. And I, I pulled myself through, looked down at my foot, saw it was pretty deformed and I was like okay well I just I can't I just won't look at my foot anymore and at that point that's when I started to hear like Zach and like Armando Vigil's friend who was out with us like you know screaming in agony asking for help um at that point I heard Vigil say something like oh man what the fuck just happened and then I didn't hear anything from him at all and like I didn't hear uh Andrew, like, you know, I'm like seeing how much chaos had happened in the back of the bus and only being able to imagine what it's like in the, you know, more forward in the bus because we're divided by a door. I'm at that point, I'm thinking my friends are dead. It took took a few moments to, you know, for the literal dust to settle. And there it was just, you know, one of those moments here your mind can't quite comprehend. 
This is Zach Johnson. He is another guitarist for The Ghost Inside. He was sleeping towards the front of the bus and he had woken up early, gone and spoken to the driver Greg and then gone back to his bunk just before the crash happened. So it went from being in my bunk on a bus to what looked like it looked like a house that was destroyed by a tornado. It, it took a few few takes looking up to the front, back to the back, to actually realize what had, what had happened. And... Our drum tech, who was sleeping above me, starts asking for somebody to help him out of his bunk. Alongside the five band members, Vigil, Zach, Andrew, Jim and Chris, there were five support crew and a driver on the bus. As soon as I got out of my bunk, the first thing I remember seeing is looking out the back window, which had blown out, and seeing Jim just in his boxers, like walking in circles in in the middle of the road, like disoriented, trying to understand, like, you know, what the hell happened. You know, he's he's told me that his first thought was like, oh, this isn't good. I need to get out and go help Greg. And I think once he got out there, the adrenaline of the situation, I think that he just like, to me from the way it looked to me looking out at him it looked like he was just walking in circles disoriented like he wasn't quite with it yet um which probably was the case we had just gotten hit by a truck we started uh kind of hearing each other a little bit started trying to ask you know if everyone was okay or uh, we were saying like i love you because i i thought i was dying Everything was cold, and you know, my, my hips were shifted to the side, and my legs weren't looking the correct way. It, it's like the shit you hear in a movie. Everything got cold, stiff. It was one of those moments where I just tried to make peace and talk to the other guys and see who was okay. I like started to feel a bit sore, and I like couldn't get around as much as I needed to. I remember like there's like virtually no cars on the road you know it's like it's a it's a farm highway so it took a minute before like the first person had gotten there and stopped and like come up to me and been like are you okay and I remember someone giving me a pair of like gym shorts to put on and someone giving me like a pair of flip-flops to put on um and standing there and standing like pretty close to where I had gotten out of the bus uh, as like the next two guys came out. As I'm getting carried out of the back of the bus, my best friend of now like 13 years, Tony, was guitar teching for us at the time. And I noticed him pinned between a bunk and the ceiling slash wall. And he's like just coming to and he, I just hear him say, I, I don't know how bad it is, but I can't feel my legs. And all I could think is like my best friend that I asked to come on this tour with us is now paralyzed and it's my fault. And then I hear like our merch guy who's also stuck in the back of the bus, you know, panicking because he'd broken his leg and the bone was sticking out of his leg and it was bleeding everywhere. And he was like trying to stand up on the other leg but he's like kept yelling how he can't hold himself anymore. And it's, it's, it's a situation where you just like, it doesn't even feel like real life. It feels like a horrible, horrible nightmare that you're having. And to be that helpless and not be able to help 
people that you love is, is possibly the worst feeling I've ever felt in my entire life. Then I remember, you know, slowly like drivers coming by stopping to help us and one guy in particular crawling in the back of the bus to like be with the two guys that were that were stuck in there. Uh, and I just remember asking anybody who walked by, like, please, can I can I please borrow your phone? I just need to call my wife. I need them to know that if they see something about this, that I am OK. And we just so happened to get in the accident in the middle of a dead zone where like nobody's phones could get reception. Someone had to drive 20 minutes just to call to get us help. And so, you know, not only can I not help my, my best friends, but I also can't even tell my family that I'm okay. So I was at work actually, when I found out. This is Chris's wife, who was his fiance at the time of the accident. My one of my best friends called me and she thought she was calling me to find out if Chris was okay. And she didn't know that I didn't know what happened yet. I was like, what like what are you what are you talking about? So then I immediately hung up the phone, went on to Facebook to try to see where they were because I had no idea. I knew that they were in like Texas, but I I didn't know where they had played the sh- their last show. Um so I went online to try to figure out what where they were, and then there were just pictures of the crash all over. So I immediately jumped out of my chair, ran down to my car, just sobbing and trying to call him and call him and call him and call him, and nothing's going through. Trying to call Jim because I had his phone number, um, got nothing. And then eventually, I think like an hour or so later, Jim had called me and he said, I'm with Chris in the ambulance. He just has a couple broken ankles. We all walked out. We're totally fine. When the first firefighters arrived, they quickly assessed and prioritised the injured band members and support crew. Once they removed those they could from the vehicles, they could only comfort the most seriously injured while they waited for the ambulances and helicopters to arrive. Everyone else was removed from the bus, like, on a backboard or like by paramedics or something. And as like my, is that initial like adrenaline shock wore off, I just remember like my body starting to tense and tighten and like, and to just become more worried that um, like it was w- worse than it looked and it looked bad. Um, the first responders were doing their best to kind of like keep tabs on the situation, but I mean, we know now, like, the guys that responded to this accident are all volunteer firefighters. Like, not that that takes away from, like, how talented they are or how committed they are, but, like, they're not downtown New York City firefighters fighting, you know, a four-alarm blaze every other day. Uh, They're not seeing dead bodies. Like, they're not, like, this is not, this isn't what they do. You know, like, they, they respond to brush fires in the desert. News of the accident started to spread and quickly reached the Ghost Inside's management team. I got a phone call. It was interesting because I we were I was with a day to remember, and we flew to Hawaii. This is John Youngman. He is the Ghost Inside's manager. He was in Hawaii, about to fly to Tokyo with another band he manages, when the news reached him. I went to bed early that night, and I was laying in bed, and my phone just starts ringing off the hook, and I'm like, okay, something's going on. So, 
you know, second, third ring, I answered. It's it's Dave Shapiro, the band's agent at the time. And uh, he calls me and said, hey, man, there's been a bus accident for the ghost to side. And then he starts crying on the phone, starts tearing up. And he said, there's fatalities. There's two dead. And it was just like, oh, shit. Like, state of shock, right? Like, I don't, I'd never dealt with that as a manager. And, uh, and, and you're just really... I'm not thinking as a manager at that point. I'm thinking as a friend, like, did I just lose some fucking friends? Like whatever happened, I knew something bad had happened. And it's like, okay, life is going to change from this fucking moment. Back at the crash site, it wasn't clear as to the severity of the situation due to the different conditions people were in. While Jim and Chris had managed to exit the bus, Vigil was unconscious and other people were still trapped in the wreckage. But I distinctly remember overhearing someone saying like, we have three bodies on the other side of the bus, like dead on arrival. And I didn't know at that time that there was another vehicle involved in the accident. So I instantly went like, okay, Greg, the driver, like as unfortunate as it is, like if, if there's other people dead, like surely Greg is one of them. And then like, who are the other two? Um, and I was, fairly certain that it was Andrew and Vigil just because of where they were positioned on the bus. I remember asking Jim, you know, is Greg okay? Is Greg our driver okay? And I remember Jim probably trying to, probably trying to protect me a little bit because I could probably tell I was still shook up and saying, you know, I, I don't know what's going on up there yet, man. Uh, I'm not sure what the situation is. And I'm sure at that point, you know, he had been out walking around. He had seen the situation. I'm sure he knew it. At this point, there were two confirmed fatalities. Greg Hoke, the driver for the Ghost Inside, and Steve Cunningham, the driver of the 18-wheeler. The 10 members of the band and crew were still alive, though some were in a very serious condition and were rushed to hospital by air ambulance. So they had to originally split us between three different hospitals because there were just too many of us for one ICU to take on at one time. Um, and they kind of split us up by varying levels of uh, severity. So like Vigil, Andrew, Tony, Zach, and uh, our merch guy all went to the like their top of the line hospital, their shock trauma, whatever. And our jump tech and Jim and I ended up at like, you know, an, another hospital of three of us. Cause we, we had the, the least severe injuries. Um, those two left the same day. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't walk. I had two broken ankles and a shattered foot and a broken rib. And so they, they admitted me there. And so I spent the first 24 hours by myself at another hospital with no cell phone, uh, no way of contacting anybody. And so I, I spent that first 24 hours thinking that, all of my friends could be dead for all I know. We got to the hospital. I had some x-rays. I got some crutches and Timmy and I checked ourselves out and went straight to the other hospital. Um, at that point, the five guys at that hospital were all in medically induced comas. It was pretty late at that point. Um, and they weren't going to let us in to visit and identify the guys. And we were standing in the lobby of like the ICU, uh, kind of like having this discussion with like the overnight nurse and the security guy. The 11 o'clock news came on. The driver of a 
tour bus is dead after a head-on crash with an 18-wheeler. The band, the ghost inside, was traveling on and that it, bus in you El know, the, up on the TV just mother. above, and they're talking about the crash and these survivors and that stuff. And I'm like, that is us. We're here for the guys that you have. And that's when they kind of like put it all together and we're like, okay, like there, there's no family coming, you know, like we're in El Paso, like there's no one, there's no one coming uh, until at least tomorrow. Like you can't just get there from <laughs> Charlotte, Michigan, where Andrew's parents live or from, from Urbandale, Iowa, where, where Zach's mom lives. Like you can't just get to El Paso on a couple hours notice. It doesn't work that way. So we were able to provide enough information for them to like put a name with each body. Uh, you know, I was able to be like, Jonathan is the one with the three X's tattooed on his left shoulder. Uh, Andrew is, you know, the one with this tattoo. Zach is the one with those tattoos. Um, and so that, at that point, that's where they start building like the profile of like who's in what room. And <clears throat> I walked like room to room with one of the nurses, kind of like, getting an update on each person's status and uh at that point vigil was somewhere in some other part of the hospital having like a full body ct scan done um and we waited and waited and waited until they like brought him up in the elevator to like be placed in an icu room and that was kind of when timmy and i lost it like at that point we knew everyone was alive at least for now, and that like we had a chance for like the ten of us to make it. I I was still in the uh, in like the triage in the hospital, uh, waiting to get taken to my room, and a nurse came in and said that Greg, our driver's wife, was on the phone and she was trying to find him, and I just I couldn't I, I couldn't tell her. Uh, I couldn't emotionally handle telling her and I can't even begin to wrap my head around uh, what she was feeling in that moment knowing that he was involved in that accident and not being able to track him down or get any answers and unfortunately we we you know we he's one of the people that we lost in the accident and and how does how does your family cope with that Due to the severity of their injuries, some of the band members went immediately into surgery. And while this was happening, the management team and friends of the band kicked into action. There was no handbook for us as managers to, to, to figure out how to deal with an accident. We realized quickly, we don't know any of the band's family. We don't know how to reach a fucking single person in the band's family, but we need to notify the band's family that there's been a horrible accident. So... What we did was me and my office, we just started splitting it up. And like we were going, we were on the band's Facebook pages, like looking at, I was looking at Jonathan Vigil, trying to find people with the same last name. Like I got a hold of, you know, Vigil's mom's sister or something like that. Somebody, you know, I remember talking to a cousin of his first and we, we just slowly like got in touch with everybody. And then we flew all the parents to, to El Paso as we figured out what was, what was going on. Bing, who works for John at the management company, immediately boarded a flight to Texas to help support the band. By noon on the 20th, uh, myself and the majority of the parents were already in Texas. So we got everyone there within 24 hours, um, which is a pretty quick turnaround. 
we eventually ended up going into the the wreckage to try to salvage as much as we could of their you know clothes computers ids passports all that kind of stuff because the accident happened while they were virtually everyone was still sleeping they were all in pajamas and stuff like that so when they all left they didn't have anything on them phones wallets nothing you know jim had to identify a bunch of the dudes who were not conscious at the arrival of the hospital you know by their tattoos and you know we keep digital scans of everyone's passports on file um not for this particular situation but you know for any event of emergency and you know we were able to use those to uh help the hospitals figure out who was who and you know, bring up their medical medical records and and all that kind of stuff. So it, it took a minute, but uh, but yeah, we were able to get some of the stuff that was in the in the accident back. The news continued to spread throughout the industry and quickly reached Kevin Lyman, the founder of the Warp Tour, who also wanted to help. The guy that owns Warp Tour, Kevin Lyman, um, just sent someone. Like he put money in her bank account, bought her a plane ticket and said, go help. And like, who, who does that? So like Stacy Cornett, who's our friend, she's been a production assistant on all these like big tours. She's been a tour manager. She, she knows all about how this stuff works. She just shows up and she starts tour managing the parents. Like they didn't, they had not planned on being away from home. Like most of them had literally walked out the door, gotten on a plane and come to El Paso. No clothes, no plan, no nothing. So Stacy just stepped up and stepped in and was like, I have permission from the local Vans outlet store to go take as much stuff off the shelf as we need. So tell me what size sneakers you wear and I'm going to go grab you a pair of Vans. And, you know, like, so she took on so much of that stuff of just making sure that Everyone had enough to get to the next day. 24 hours after the accident, Zach woke up after having emergency surgery. I woke up and, you know, family was already in Texas and I was in a neck brace and already had metal through my left leg and they had already done one surgery. When I woke up, I was a little bit disoriented, but my mom was there. In the room I was in, I could also see, I think it was our merch guy, Danny's mom. And, uh, you know, I had a breathing tube in, but I woke up and made eye contact and started trying to talk and move. And uh, they gave me a notepad. The first thing I asked, I, I wrote down, I was like, who else died? And, you know, they informed me who, who had passed and who didn't. Uh, I, I asked, will I ever walk again? I wrote down and I, I got lucky that one of the surgeons was in there and he's like, yeah, you know, it's going to be tough, but, but you will one day. While Zach had woken from his surgery and Vigil had been stabilized, the biggest concern was now with Andrew, the band's drummer. Fortunately, my wife was able to get a hold of one of the band management managers, uh, and and they, you know, they kind of kept us filled in, and and uh, but we were, you know, mostly concerned about Andrew, you know, if he was alive. This is Larry, Andrew's dad. After he had been informed about the accident, 
he tried to get an update on Andrew's condition before heading to the hospital. And we ended up calling the hospital at, in El Paso to find out if our son was still alive or not. It was pretty traumatic. And they didn't want to give us any information. We, we were on a, like a three-way call with one of the nurses, and they were reluctant to tell us his condition. And um, I, I spoke up and I said, yeah, he's got a great big hopeless on his leg, hopeless tattoo. And at that point, they acknowledged that, yes, he's, he's alive and he's in surgery and he is in bad shape. Andrew had suffered a number of serious injuries in the crash and was induced into a coma so the doctors could work on him. We were got to the to the ICU area where were actually all the, the critically injured members of of the band were at, and we we were right outside his room, and this nurse wouldn't let us go in. And my wife, she's a tough one. She she demanded you let. I have to see my son. She demanded it, and they were fighting it. But we finally got to go in and see him, and it was pretty shocking. He was in a coma at that time, a medically-induced coma, and he looked rough. And, and uh, yeah, it was it was pretty much like you would expect it to be. Uh, you know, we, we, we just had a big question mark in our heads on, you know, what kind of shape he was in and if he was ever going to come out of it. Andrew was not touch and go. Andrew was like going a couple of times and he's, there's no way to process that. Like, like I, I already thought I lost him and then I didn't. And now here they are and I'm looking at him and he's intubated and he's in a coma. And like, I'm combing his hair in, in his hospital room. And I'm like watching football with his dad. His dad is like an old union car maker guy. Like his dad is a, a guy's guy. And his dad looks like he has seen a ghost and he's on like the verge of tears. Like it looked like he had taken a right hook from Muhammad Ali. Like in that, like to see what this situation was doing to all of these people, not just the people in the hospital beds, but all of the people around them. There's like no, there's no words that do it justice. The best way I can describe it is it's, it's like a roller coaster ride. One minute you're up, you hear positive things and the next minute you're crashing down and you, and we didn't know what to think. And, uh, yeah, it was just one, a good, you know, a minor, minor step forward and then a major step backward. Terrible, terrible moment. And, and, uh, you know, of course the thing that we were looking for most is just to hear our son's voice, you know, because we didn't know right away. I thought that we, that we, we, we would end up with a son that, that had to be taken care of the rest of his life. I mean, I'm closer with the guys than I am with my own family. Uh, like, I left my family in Massachusetts to do the ghost inside all the time. So to see Andrew struggling to live 
and feel like there's nothing you can do was just crazy. Like I'm the big brother. I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm the one that fixes stuff when it goes wrong and couldn't fix it. Andrew should have died. He should have died at the scene. He should have died two or three times in the hospital. Going into Andrew's room the first time and, you know, I could, I think at that point his parents knew that he was going to lose his leg. Um, I think, again, trying to protect me, they they were trying to keep me hopeful because I think that they were probably cautiously optimistic as well, but I think that they knew the reality was he probably was going to lose his leg. But going in there and just smelling the infection in his leg, um, there was no way he was going to keep it. And like experiencing that is like that's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do is sit there and know that like my, one of my best friend's lives is just never going to be the same. And he's not even aware of what's going on right now. Uh, and you know, knowing that he was still at that point, like he could have died any minute, you know, like that's why they had to take his leg. He, he, the, the infection in his leg could have killed him. And if they tried to save the leg, he would still never be able to walk normal. So knowing that a, he could, die or B again his life is just never going to be the same and he is completely unaware of it is such a mindfuck the most concerning injury of Andrews was with his leg and the doctors were struggling to save it the best thing I can say is you know they they did their best um, to my knowledge the situation was you know it was so mangled that the blood flow wasn't adequate to uh, you know to keep the leg alive and so they had made their attempt one minute they were saying it's looking good and the next minute no and we could we could actually we could smell smell the, the infection in it you know and Right, I, you know, I'm sure that we were thinking from the start. We didn't want to admit it, but I'm sure we were thinking this might not be good, you know. And so we just went day to day, you know, until it got so bad that uh, he was going into septic shock with it, and that's not good. Uh, that that'll kill you. And so, and so it was it was as tough as it was to do. My wife and I, my wife's stronger than I am. She's like, the best way to explain her is she was mama bear. And you don't get in the way of mama bear, okay? And so between her and myself, we went to that, went to the man, uh, the doctors there and, you know, we kind of pressured them into saying, hey, he's gonna die if this doesn't get taken care of. Okay, so we took, them into this boardroom and we laid it on the line to them. What is his leg going to be like? Uh, what is it going to be like if they can save it? And they and they basically said that he's going to be dragging it around for the rest of his life. Okay. And so with that in mind and the fact that, you know, the septus was setting in, we said, take that leg off. It's hard. As, as hard as that was to do, we 
we said to take it off. And I'm telling you right now, I, my wife and I had no idea how Andrew was gonna take that, but we had to do it. We would have to deal with that. But I, I ended up signing for his leg to be removed and, and not knowing how he would respond. I told the doctor that, can you take my leg off too so he doesn't have to go through it by himself? You know when you're sleeping but you're not dreaming, but you know you're asleep and it's just black. It's just darkness. Ten days after the accident, Andrew woke up from his coma. I remember hearing a a loud bang, and then I kind of felt the bus. It felt like it just rocked a little bit. And then when I woke up, I was, yeah, I was on my back, and I was laying in the wreckage uh, at that point right away. I wasn't aware of what was going on. It was was almost like I was dreaming, but I was just staring into the sky, and I saw, like, you know, the desert around us. And then it took took maybe a, a minute or two to realize for me to put two and two together of what just happened. I was on my back and then I looked to my right and saw nothing but like desert and I I, I couldn't really move that well so I kind of did like a quarter head turn and then used my eyes to look and then I looked to the left and I saw a gigantic hole in the side of the bus with just electrical wires that looked like they'd just been shredded to pieces and wood and chunks of metal like shrapnel and I saw like pieces of like bunk um, beds and and parts of the lounge and and I could smell diesel fuel so that's obviously when I was like okay we were hit we were in an accident like this is real this is happening and I remember I, I somehow was able to get a look down because I, I, I couldn't like feel the lower half of my body and I, I, I was able to look down and see my right leg I, my my heel was was twisted towards where my toes were supposed to be, so I, I I got enough of a glimpse of that to know well my leg's badly broken and you know um, that's not good and and uh, some something inside of me just just told me to it must just be instinct and in how we're wired or something in like a fight or flight mode kind of way. Because something inside me just said, all right, you got to not freak out, calm down, and just breathe through your nose and out your mouth. And I kept doing these, like, really deep, through the nose, out the mouth, breathing exercises. I, I, I had thoughts running through my head of, like, this is bad enough to where it could be the end, but I'm, I, I refuse to have whatever's going on right now just be the end. Like, there's no way. So... You know, I got, I have family, I have my family to see and I have a life left and there's just something inside of me that just told me to calm my breathing. And I, I went into full on like Zen mode. Um, can't really explain it. 
Uh, I don't know how I knew to do that. I just did. And I think that that's a huge factor in, in how I made it through. And the next thing I know, they throw me in a helicopter and I think it was a, a female pilot and she said like you're gonna you're gonna be okay just breathe breathe do what you're doing she put a mask on me and i felt the, the helicopter go up and then i was out andrew was placed into a medically induced coma and went straight into surgery the doctors did their best to try and save his leg but the risk to his life became too large and after larry his father signed the papers the doctors amputated his right leg above the knee and 10 days later he woke up the first thing I noticed was my mom and dad sitting there. And I was aware. I know I was in the hospital, but... I don't know. It's, it's a very, very weird feeling. I knew I was in the hospital, and I saw Jim Riley, our bass player there. And I have this memory of him, like, combing my hair uh, for me. And um, I just remember seeing my mom and dad... And then I think it, it took a few days to get fully for the effects of those drugs to wear off because I was kind of in and out of reality and I was having like really weird hallucinations. Um, but yeah, at first, I, I'd say I, I, I knew I was in the hospital. I think I, I, I was aware that there was an accident, but I was unaware of the severity and who made it and this and that. Those kind of details came after I was fully out of the coma effects. Andrew's parents then faced the reality of having to give him the news about his leg. Um, it was my mom and dad. They were right there. I think it was just us in the room. And, yeah, they they told me um, that... Um, that I, I think she said... I think it was my mom, and she said, Andrew, they had to take your leg. And I was like, what? Because I was, I was there. I was like, up. Oh talking with people, joking around, you know, um, like eating food, and I didn't even realize my leg was gone down there. And I was like, what? And then they, and then they, like, I think they probably, you know, got a little emotional, and they, and they told me, but I just went, holy fuck. And I, and I, and I, like, I like pulled the covers down and saw that it, was, it had a uh, you know dressings on it and bandages, and that's when I saw it. And I seriously just was like, "Hand me my phone." <laughs> like, I I gotta I gotta um I gotta figure this out. I gotta start I gotta start planning this. And I just like took my phone and googled like prosthetic legs, best prosthetic leg money can buy. Um, drummers who have lost limbs and I mean I already everyone knew of Rick Allen from Def Leppard and all that you know I, I googled musicians who have lost limbs uh, stuff like that Prosthet I mean I was just looking at prosthetics all my nurses coming in I was like showing them like look at this like look what this guy did look at this leg this is cool I was just like I think I was faced with a choice right then and there of um there's two options, you know, you can, I can either just really get, you know, depressed and, and think about, like, how devastating this is and and kind of wallow in self-pity and uh, um, 
be miserable or I could just like you know say fuck that part three the recovery coming next week I, it seemingly felt like this was just not gonna work out and uh, and and like I don't I don't even want to play drums it's not fun anymore is it really gonna be okay like is this is this gonna be all right like you know our drummer doesn't have a leg how are we gonna continue he said to me like I don't want to be in the band I don't want to go on tour I don't want to do this if there's no vigil, there's no the ghost inside. I thought for sure that, that the band was done at that point. This show was produced by Danny Knowles and Tom Pattinson, with additional thanks to Daniel Johnson for artwork. I do also want to say a massive thanks to the ghost inside for allowing me to tell their story, as well as giving me so much of their time. I need to also say thanks to John Youngman and Bing from Fly South Music, their management team. Thanks for all your help. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the best and safest exchange for buying Bitcoin. Available at kraken.com or you can download the app from the Apple or Google app stores. I'm Peter McCormack. Head over to defiance.news where you can download previous shows and watch my films.